Chapter 11 of Planet of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by November 8 Echo Victor Victor. Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison. Chapter 11. Facing the silent distance, Brian's thoughts hurtled about in sweeping circles. There would be no more than an instant's tick of time before the Magter avenged themselves bloodily and completely. He felt a fleeting regret for not having brought his gun, then abandoned the thought. There was no time for regrets. What could he do now? The silent watchers hadn't attacked instantly and Brian realized that they couldn't be positive yet that Lig Magda had been killed. Only Brian himself knew the deadliness of that blow. Their lack of knowledge might buy him a little more time. Lig Magda is unconscious, but he will revive quickly, Brian said, pointing to the huddled body. As the eyes turned automatically to follow his finger, he began walking slowly towards the exit. I did not want to do this, but he forced me to, because he wouldn't listen to reason. Now I have something else to show you, something that I hoped it would not be necessary to reveal. He was saying the first words that came into his head, trying to keep them distracted as long as possible. He must appear to be only going across the room. That was the feeling he must generate. There was even time to stop for a second and straighten his rumpled clothing and brush the sweat from his eyes, talking easily, walking slowly towards the hall that led out of the chamber. He was halfway there when the spell broke and the rush began. One of the Magter knelt and touched the body and shouted a single word. Dead! Brian hadn't waited for the official announcement. At the first movement of feet, he dived headlong for the shelter of the exit. There was a spatter of tiny missiles on the wall next to him, and he had a brief glimpse of raised blowguns before the wall intervened. He went up the dimly lit stairs three at a time. The pack was just behind him, voiceless and deadly. He could not gain on them. If anything, they were closing the distance as he pushed his already tired body to the utmost. There was no subtlety or trick he could use now, just straightforward flight back the way he had come, a single slip on the irregular steps, and it would be all over. There was someone ahead of him. If the woman had waited a few seconds more, he would certainly have been killed, but instead of slashing at him as he went by the doorway, she made the mistake of rushing to the center of the stairs, the knife ready to impale him as he came up. Without slowing, Brian fell onto his hands and easily dodged under the blow. As he passed, he twisted and seized her around the waist, picking her from the ground. When her legs lifted from under her, the woman screamed, the first human sound Brian had heard in this human anthill. His pursuers were just behind him, and he hurled the woman into them with all his strength. They fell in a tangle, and Brian used the precious seconds gained to reach the top of the building. There must have been other stairs and exits, because one of the Magter stood between Brian and the way down out of this trap, armed and ready to kill him if he tried to pass. 
As he ran towards the executioner, Brian flicked on his collar radio and shouted into it, I'm in trouble here. Can you... The guards in the car must have been waiting for this message. Before he had finished, there was the thud of a high-velocity slug hitting flesh, and the disson spun and fell, blood soaking his shoulder. Brian leaped over him and headed for the ramp. This next one is me. Hold your fire, he called. Both guards must have had their telescopic sights zeroed on the spot. They let Brian pass, then threw in a hail of semi-automatic fire that tore chunks from the stone and screamed away in noisy ricochets. Brian didn't try to see if anyone was braving this hail of covering fire. He concentrated his energies on making as quick and erratic a descent as he could. Above the sounds of the firing, he heard the car motor howl as it leaped forward. With their careful aim spoiled, the gunners switched to full automatic and unleashed a hailstorm of flying metal that bracketed the top of the tower. Cease firing, Brian gasped into the radio as he ran. The driver was good and timed his arrival with exactitude. The car reached the base of the tower at the same instant Brian did, and he burst through the door while it was still moving. No orders were necessary. He fell headlong onto a seat as the car swung in a dust-raising turn and ground into high gear back to the city. Reaching over carefully, the tall guard gently extracted a bit of pointed wood and fluff from a fold of Brian's pants. He cracked open the car door and just as delicately threw it out. I knew that thing didn't touch you, he said, since you're still among the living. They've got a poison on those blowgun darts that takes all of twelve seconds to work. Lucky. Lucky? Brian was beginning to realize just how lucky he was to be out of the trap alive. And with information. Now that he knew more about the Magter, he shuddered at his innocence in walking alone and unarmed into the tower. Skill had helped him survive, but better than average luck had been necessary. Curiosity had gotten him in, brashness and speed had taken him out. He was exhausted, battered and bloody, but cheerfully happy. The facts about the Magter were arranging themselves into a theory that might explain their attempt at racial suicide. It just needed a little time to be put into shape. A pain cut across his arm and he jumped, startled, pieces of his, of his thoughts crashing into ruin around him. The gunner had cracked the first aid box and was swabbing his arm with antiseptic. The knife wound was long, but not deep. Brian shivered while the bandage was going on, then quickly slipped into his coat. The air conditioner whined industriously, bringing down the temperature. There was no attempt to follow the car. When the black tower had dropped over the horizon, the guards relaxed ran cleaning rods through their guns, and compared marksmanship. All of their antagonism towards Brian was gone. They actually smiled at him. He had given them the first chance to shoot back since they had been on this planet. The ride was uneventful, and Brian was scarcely aware of it. A theory was taking form in his mind. It was radical and startling, yet it seemed to be the only one that fitted the facts. He pushed at it from all sides, but if there were any holes he couldn't find them, what it needed was dispassionate proving or disproving. 
there was only one person on DIS who was qualified to do this. Leah was working in the lab when he came in, bent over a low-power binocular microscope. Something small, limbless, and throbbing was on the slide. She glanced up when she heard his footsteps, smiling warmly when she recognized him. Fatigue and pain had drawn her face. Her skin, glistening with burn ointment, was chapped and peeling. I must look a wreck, she said, putting the back of her hand to her cheek. Something like a well-oiled and lightly cooked piece of beef. She lowered her arms suddenly and took his hand in both of hers. Her palms were warm and slightly moist. Thank you, Brian, was all she could say. Her society on earth was highly civilized and sophisticated, able to discuss any topic without emotion and without embarrassment. This was fine in most circumstances, but it made it difficult to thank a person for saving your life. However you tried to phrase it, it came out sounding like a last-act speech from a historical play. There was no doubt, however, as to what she meant. Her eyes were large and dark, the pupils dilated by the drugs she had been given. They could not lie, nor could the emotions he sensed. He did not answer, just held her hand an instant longer. How do you feel? he asked, concerned. His conscience twinged as he remembered that he was the one who had ordered her out of bed and back to work today. I should be feeling terrible, she said with an airy wave of her hand. But I'm walking on top of the world. I'm so loaded with painkillers and stimulants that I'm high as the moon. All the nerves to my feet feel turned off. It's like walking on two balls of fluff. Thanks for getting me out of that awful hospital and back to work. Brian was suddenly sorry for having driven her from her sick bed. Don't be sorry, Leah said, apparently reading his mind, but really seeing only his sudden ashamed expression. I'm feeling no pain. Honestly, I feel a little lightheaded and foggy at times. Nothing more. And this is the job I came here to do. In fact, well, it's almost impossible to tell you just how fascinating it all is. It's almost worth getting baked and parboiled for. She swung back to the microscope, centering the specimen with a turn of the stage adjustment screw. Poor Isle was right when he said this planet was exobiologically fascinating. This is a gastropod, a lot like otostomia, but it has parasitical morphological changes so profound that... There's something else I remember, Brian said, interrupting her enthusiastic lecture, only half of which he could understand. Didn't Isle also hope that you would give some study to the natives as well as their environment? The problem is with the Dissons, not with the local wildlife. But I am studying them, Leah insisted. The Dissons have attained an incredibly advanced form of commensalism. Their lives are so intimately connected and integrated with the other life forms that they must be studied in relation to their environment. I doubt if they show as many external physical changes as little eating foot otostomia on the slide here, but there will surely be a number of psychological changes and adjustments that will crop up, 
One of these might be the explanation of their urge for planetary suicide. That may be true, but I don't think so, Brian said. I went on a little expedition this morning and found something that has more immediate relevancy. For the first time, Leah became aware of his slightly battered condition. Her drug-grooved mind could only follow a single idea at a time and had overlooked the significance of the bandage and dirt. I've been visiting, Brian said, forestalling the question on her lips. The Magder are the ones who are responsible for causing the trouble, and I had to see them up close before I could make any decisions. It wasn't a very pleasant thing, but I found out what I wanted to know. They are different in every way from the normal Dissons. I've compared them. I've talked to Olv, the native who saved us in the desert, and I can understand him. He is not like us in many ways. He certainly couldn't be living in this oven, but he is still undeniably human. He gave us drinking water when we needed it, then brought help. The Magter, the upper-class lords of Dis, are the direct opposite. As cold-blooded and ruthless a bunch of murderers as you can possibly imagine. They tried to kill me when they met me without reason. Their clothes, habits, dwellings, manners, everything about them differs from that of the normal Disson. More important, the Magder are as coldly efficient and inhuman as a reptile. They have no emotions, no love, no hate, no anger, no fear, nothing. Each of them is a chilling bundle of thought processes and reactions with all the emotions removed. Aren't you exaggerating? Leah asked. After all, you can't be sure. It might just be part of their training not to reveal any emotional state. Everyone must experience emotional states whether they like it or not. That's my main point. Everyone does, except the Magder. I can't go into all the details now, so you'll just have to take my word for it. Even at the point of death, they have no fear or hatred. It may sound impossible, but it is true. Leah tried to shake the knots from her drug-hazed mind. I'm dull today, she said. You'll have to excuse me. If these rulers had no emotional responses, that might explain their present suicidal position. But an explanation like this raises more new problems than it supplies answers to the old ones. How did they get this way? It doesn't seem humanly possible to be without emotions of some kind. Just my point. Not humanly possible. I think these ruling class Dissons aren't human at all, like the other Dissons. I think they are alien creatures, robots, or androids. Anything except men. I think they are living in disguise among the normal human dwellers. At first Leah started to smile. Then her feeling changed when she saw his face. You are serious? she asked. Never more so. I realize it must sound as if I've had my brains bounced around too much this morning. Yet, this is the only idea I can come up with that fits all of the facts. Look at the evidence yourself. One simple thing stands out clearly, and it must be considered first if any theory is to hold up. That is the Magter's complete indifference to death, their own or anyone else's. Is that normal to mankind? 
No, but I can find a couple of explanations that I would rather explore first before dragging in an alien life form. There must have been a mutation or an inherited disease that has deformed or warped their minds. Wouldn't that be sort of self-eliminating? Brian asked. Anti-survival? People who die before puberty would find it a little difficult to pass on a mutation to their children. But let's not beat this one point to death. It's the totality of those people that I find so hard to accept. Any one thing might be explained away, but not the collection of them. What about their complete lack of emotion, or their manner of dress and their secrecy in general? The ordinary Disson wears a cloth kilt while the Magyar cover themselves as completely as possible. They stay in their black towers and never go out except in groups. Their dead are always removed so they can't be examined. In every way they act like a race apart, and I think they are. Granted for the moment that this outlandish idea might be true, how did they get here, and why doesn't anyone know about it besides them? Easily enough explained, Brian insisted. There are no written records on this planet. After the breakdown, when the handful of survivors were just trying to exist here, the aliens could have landed and moved in. Any interference could have been wiped out. Once the population began to grow, the invaders found they could keep control by staying separate so their alien difference wouldn't be noticed. Why should that bother them? Leah asked. If they are so indifferent to death, they can't have any strong thoughts on public opinion or alien body odor. Why would they bother with such a complex camouflage? If they arrived from another planet, what has happened to the scientific ability that brought them here? Peace, Brian said. I don't know enough to be able even to guess at answers to half your questions. I'm just trying to fit a theory to the facts, and the facts are clear. The Magdar are so inhuman, they would give me nightmares if I were sleeping these days. What we need is more evidence. Then get it, Leah said with finality. I'm not telling you to turn murderer, but you might try a bit of grave digging. Give me a scalpel and one of your friends stretched out on a slab, and I'll quickly tell you what he is or not. She turned back to the microscope and bent over the eyepiece. That was really the only way to hack the Gordian knot. Dis had only 36 more hours to live, so individual deaths shouldn't be of any concern. He had to find a dead Magter, and if none was obtainable in the proper condition, he had to get one of them by violence. For a planetary savior, he was personally doing in an awful lot of the citizenry. He stood behind Leah, looking down at her thought fully while she worked. The back of her neck, lightly covered with gently curling hair, was turned toward him. With one of the about-face shifts the mind is capable of, his thoughts flipped from death to life, and he experienced a strong desire to caress this spot lightly, to feel the yielding texture of female flesh. Plunging his hands deep into his pockets, he walked quickly to the door. Get some rest soon, he called to her. I doubt if those bugs will give you the answer. I'm going now to see if I can get the full-sized specimen you want. 
The truth could be anywhere. I'll stay on these until you come back, she said, not looking up from the microscope. Up under the roof was a well-equipped communications room. Brian had taken a quick look at it when he had first toured the building. The duty operator had earphones on, though only one of the phones covered an ear, and was maundering through the bands. His shoeless feet were on the edge of the table, and he was eating a thick sandwich held in his free hand. His eyes bulged when he saw Brian in the doorway, and he jumped into a flurry of action. Hold the pose, Brian told him. It doesn't bother me, and if you make any sudden moves, you are liable to break a phone, electrocute yourself, or choke to death. Just see if you can set the transceiver on this frequency for me. Brian wrote the number on a scratch pad and slid it over to the operator. It was the frequency Professor Commander Croft had given him for the radio of the illegal terrorists, the Nyord Army. The operator plugged in a handset and gave it to Brian. Circuit open, he mumbled around a mouthful of still unswallowed sandwich. This is Brant, director of the CRF. Come in, please. He went on repeating this for more than ten minutes before he got an answer. What do you want? I have a message of vital urgency for you, and I would also like your help. Do you want any more information on the radio? No. Wait there. We'll get in touch with you after dark. The carrier wave went dead. Thirty-five hours to the end of the world, and all he could do was wait. End of chapter 11